not weird and standoffish, but we do want to stand out from those around. We want to be able to show that it means something to be a Christian and follow Jesus. And we also believe that one of our callings is to fill this place with people who are saved. I've been rereading, I've been rethinking about that this week. I've been reading Greg's book on prophecy, Greg Haslam, and came across some reference to the prophecies you would have had before my time about this building and, and how it is about filling it with people saved, to double in here, which we, if we filled it, we would have been doubling our membership. But, and I think it is about seeing this place like a, a barn filled with, uh, with grain, which is people coming into the kingdom of God. And so that is what we're doing. That's how we, we will fulfill our, our mission that's there on our site. We've got more about the vision and the detail there as well. But I think God wants us to keep us from going off course, to give us some corrective challenges this morning and this week, and also preventative to stop us from drifting into compromise where there might be a danger of it. But what I'm saying this morning isn't purely for us as a church. Um, if you're a visitor here, I hope it's relevant to you. It's about us individually, not just corporate word. And I think it's relevant to the church in our nation at our time, 21st century the church in England as well. It's a hopefully contemporary challenge to all of us, and I trust God will help me to convey that. When we read this, we're going to read it again, and I know we read it last week, let's just remember that this is the end of a long and in many ways illustrious life. There were many wonderful things happened in Solomon's life, many great successes like building a magnificent temple to God, worshipping God in this beautiful temple in the centre of Jerusalem, which actually God had directed David to prepare for, and David left the instructions. David was Solomon's father. And Solomon completed what David wanted to see happen. But he didn't end well. And it's quite a sad and sobering chapter. We'll just read the first 13 verses of chapter 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth, 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Shamosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and if you have not kept my covenant, my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. 
Yet I will not tear the kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe, the whole kingdom, I beg your pardon, from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Now last week we said, how on earth did this happen? And I sort of looked at four sort of worrying signs that you see in the early years of Solomon's reign. You see a prophetic silence where once upon a time Nathan seems to feature hugely in David's life. You don't find the equivalent with Solomon at all. We find he makes pragmatic decisions. And one of them, which is a big one, which we will touch again this morning, is this marrying of foreign wives. We'll talk about that. It's a a sort of wily diplomatic move to keep in good relationship with other kings around, potential enemies. He had this prosperous indulgence where Solomon had enough wealth to do whatever he wanted to. And that meant not only did he build a gorgeous palace for himself, which he took more care over than the temple, but he actually was able to indulge in what was for that time the the top sort of military might of the day, which was thousands of chariots, 12,000 horses, which he didn't really need, but he relied on them and basically on his wealth for his strategies uh, for defence. And then there was a permissive attitude. He tolerated things that he shouldn't have tolerated, particularly the use of the high places to worship God. They weren't there for that. They were originally pagan worship sites. They were told to get rid of them and worship God in one place and one way. And Solomon tolerated, indeed joined in with, this casual, easygoing, well, we can worship God in the nearest convenient site, which is what they had been doing. But this week I want to see three lessons for us, uh, three important lessons, and uh, learn them really more from this chapter if I'm honest, or from the context of this chapter. And I want to challenge us all, really, uh, every one of us, whether you are a Christian a long time, a short time, or even on the edge of becoming a Christian. I hope you'll find something here that God will speak to you about. I think the first thing I want to talk about is sin creep, what I've called beware of sin creep. That is the creeping growth of sin's grip in your life. That what starts as a small indulgence, starts as a small toleration or compromise, can actually grow to have an extraordinary grip in your life. One uh, writer describes what happens to Solomon as the creeping pace of accumulated compromises. What we see in Solomon's life is the creeping pace of accumulated compromises. Solomon did not turn away from God in one moment. One rebellious act, one major blow-up, one disappointment, one deep depression, or whatever you would call it, one tragedy. His spiritual coldness began with little departures from God's law. And one of them is right back in 1 Kings 3 verse 1. It will go on the screen. It says, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. Notice why he married the Egyptian princess. It was to make an alliance with Egypt, so that Egypt didn't attack them, so he could be even stronger in his influence. He wasn't relying on God. It was human thinking, very shrewd, very uh, you know, wise by human standards to do that. He brought her to the city of David until he finished his building, his palace, and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. So just at that early moment, Solomon goes for one foreign wife, one Egyptian wife. That is honestly what he did at first. He took one wife from the Egyptian uh, context. But over the years, that grew and grew. And actually in our chapter, he has 700 
wives. 700 wives of royal birth. They were all these sort of things. Princesses from the nations right around. What an incredible growth is the problem. Someone else has said, it's not the sins we don't know that are the problem, it's the sins we excuse that are the real traps in our lives. The things we sort of know are wrong, but we sort of legitimise them and excuse them and rationalise them. And we do all do this. And they're the dangerous ones, not the ones we're ignorant of and then suddenly they catch us out and maybe we do something about it. Solomon's sin creep is pretty amazing. He goes from one to 700 over the years, many years, of these foreign wives. He allowed them to bring their pagan religion because that's what he'd done with the Egyptian wife, princess. They were able to bring their religion and establish their own method of of worship when they came over. You know, that's Solomon, but even in that context, perhaps that context of sexual temptation, there's a very similar pattern with our lives. You know, you start by just watching a few things you shouldn't watch, and it really does grow. There are some shocking examples of that. The One of the most outstanding, if you ever read it, is James Dobson, who had an interview with one of the appalling serial murderers in, in America's name, I can't remember, who was ultimately executed. And when he has this interview with this uh, serial murder of women in America, it started with pornography when he was a teenager. And it just, it clearly is, it grew and grew and grew. It really is a danger to mess with anything, whether it be lying or just a little bit of fiddling with money. You need to stop it early on. Now Solomon began and it grew and grew. Uh, Matthew Henry has a comment on this verse about the 700 wives. He says, divine wisdom has appointed one woman to one man. And those who do not think one enough will not think two or three enough. And there's a sort of truth in that, you know. In our day and age, we have mocked marriage. We've mocked the idea of committed to one woman, one man for life. It's been mocked, it's been despised. And people said, you know, it's much, and it's put forward as freedom. You know, we don't need the piece of paper. We just can be committed to each other, love, love each other. What it really means is that people have multiple partners. And their lives become a complex mess of emotional and physical entanglements. It actually is a very destructive thing. And there's a lot of total twaddle and spin and blather which sort of of percolates through our society. And sometimes you just see a statistic which reminds you of the truth. It was a statistic, I think Guy used it actually, but it came from a, a, a national secular source Statistically, people who live together unmarried, on average, stay together two years. Two years. We may have problems with marriage and divorce, and so all the divorce rates going up, but living together is a very flimsy way of of joining together. People who live together without marriage for more than ten years are as rare as, I don't know, blue moons. People don't last that long. And here's another pretty shocking aspect to it. The same statistics reflect that when children arrive, now we know what the sentimental blather we pick up is, oh, we stay together for the children. Oh, no, you don't. When children arrive, those statistics drop. In other words, people are more likely to split up who live together when they have kids, because kids are hard work, if you haven't noticed, and if you haven't any, hadn't they? And they they really do put pressure on you. 
So of course people split up because God has designed us to be committed in covenant love one to one, one man, one woman. It works. It brings stability to society. It brings wholeness and health even if you don't believe in God. It's a basic way in which God has ordained things. And frankly, the alternatives are disastrous and we are reaping it in our day and age. But it starts with just like, hey, let's be, I was there, I heard it, you know, in the 60s. Let's get rid of these things, let's be liberal, we don't need pieces of paper and all the rest of it. And then the law of the land tries to say, well, people don't want this, so it legitimizes it, legislates to make cohabitation as easy as marriage and indeed to downgrade marriage, which is what we've done. And then we begin to see huge problems. This principle happens again and again. It creeps and grows. But let's leave aside the state of our nation. Let's think about ourselves. We're not out to just to, to, to fire off at others. Because in our own lives, we have to watch this. This creeping thing becomes very destructive. Solomon is a challenge because he starts off well. He starts off with good foundations in God. And it's only later in his life that the full depth of what he's done in terms of drift becomes evident. And here's a challenge to every one of us. It's not enough just to start well in your married life. Start well in your career. Start well in your church. Start well in any aspect of life. You know, I I was a red-hot Christian. I I was very committed. Well, that was back then, but life's got a bit weary. Yeah, you've got to keep running well. There's no security in saying, well, I did put quite a good foundation. We had a great marriage preparation and we, we had a lovely Christian marriage and now, now we're 20 years down the line and we don't really work at it much. Well, that is dangerous. Come to the marriage course and so on. Keep working on it. It's true of any aspect of life. You don't just start well. You need to keep going. Most soberly and challengingly, that is true of our Christian life totally. And this I have found personally quite challenging as I've meditated and prepared for this talk. The Greek word most commonly used for faith in the New Testament clearly involves two concepts. Faith and faithfulness. In other words, Greek, the Greek word we translate faith has no concept that you believe with your head and it doesn't affect your action. Real faith inevitably means you are faithful to what you believe in. You cannot have real faith that doesn't have that fruit. It really is true that the perseverance of your faith is the demonstration of your faith. And I think in our eagerness, well many meaning, to emphasize something like once saved, always saved, we can always get to the point where we think, well, I believed in it 25 years ago, went forward with Billy Graham, I've got my ticket to heaven, I'm really way away from that now, but I've still got it here. I don't think the Bible gives you that sort of confidence at all. I think that's what a lot of the scriptures that we tussle with are really saying. There's no evidence you have real faith if you're not still running the race. You're not still running the race, how do I know you're on the race? You know, here's a marathon running around the roads. You're sitting having a cup of coffee at the cafe. and You tell me you're in the marathon. That's a nonsense. If you're in the marathon, you're running on the race. And, and there's a sense in which faith and faithfulness are two sides of one coin. That doesn't mean we get everything right. It doesn't mean we, we, we hit it all the time. 
we, we don't make loads of mistakes. But actually, we are holding on to God. We're still running the race. It's God we come back to. It's Jesus our eyes are on. It's, we are, in a sense, persevering. We're faithful, and it's a demonstration of our faith. Real faith, real faith is designed to work that way. The faith that God imparts to us will work that way. It's not about getting everything right. That's superficial, legalistic thinking. It's about a heart of faithfulness. It must go together. Now, thank God you can put things right. You can actually come away from the cafe, get back on the race, and uh, provided you haven't died yet, I think, you know, we're, we're, it's great. But I hope you don't, you don't just stay at the cafe. I've got no guarantee you're safe if you're not in the race. Now, I, I, I want to say a bit more about that another time. So, Solomon was not faithful to God, and therefore his good foundations counted for little towards the end of his life. Let's go on to the second thing I want to talk about. Guard your heart. The danger of sin creep, guard your heart. When you read this chapter, the word heart comes up at least five times. I think it's all in the first four verses. But there's the word heart quite often. Now, in the Bible, in the Bible, heart does not just mean emotions. It means will and thought and emotions. It's all of the, the real you, the real center. Now, we think you can separate your head from your heart. Well, of course you can. You can say, you know, but we think that's okay. Well, with my head, I do this. With my heart, I do that. But in the Bible, it's not really like that. It's saying what's in your heart is what counts. The head's pretty irrelevant. It's, it's the will and the emotions and the heart. So, for example, here's a verse which is um, from Proverbs. It says, in his heart, a man plans his course. Now, we might say he does it in his head. No, no, no. The Bible says in your heart, you really plan your course. Now, I haven't time to explore these things as fully as I'd like to, but they're very, the Bible is right, and often we're wrong with our sort of philosophical sort of attitudes. The Bible says it's what's in your heart that ultimately determines your course. And you know that all around. Let's go back to the subject I've already mentioned. You know, many people, you did a survey, would say it is better for children... If, one, if their natural mum and dad who, who produced them brought them up and stayed together throughout the life of their children. I think if you said to people, do you think that would be basically better? I think in people's heads, almost, probably, I guarantee a huge majority would say, yeah. You know, if, if, you, if, if a man and woman have a child and then they stay together to bring that child up and look after it, that must be better basically for the child. But, but actually, huge numbers don't do that, even though their head tells them that's the best way to do it. Because they're following other things in their heart. Things that lead them to do other things. Things that are, uh, uh, so it's really the heart, the central sort of will and emotions that drive you. It it's, can be a very good thing. Sometimes a heart thing is what makes us brave or passionate when our head would say, don't do it, it's stupid, it's irrational. So the Bible's wiser than we, than we are really. And it says the heart is where the issue is really decided, deep on the inside. And Solomon compromises in his heart. He's clearly attracted to these women. They're not purely diplomatic sort of moves. He finds them attractive. He, he has any woman he wants, really. It's quite obvious from the, from the texture. And that, that got his interest. And it tells us that he, 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 he held fast to them in love, it says. Verse 12. You know, he loved 700 of them. What he loved was the experience of having these beautiful women around. He could have sex with whenever he liked. And who all looked upon him as a sort of superstar celebrity and kept him in well with all the kings. He loved the whole thing he was into. He really did. And he, he probably rationalised it as politically shrewd. 
Then he rationalized tolerating their religion. He loved them. He loved what it meant. And he rationalized it. He said, well, you know, I can't have these girls coming here as princesses. I can't make them all Israelites, can I? They can't write back to their dads, the king of the Ammonites, the king of the pharaohs or whatever, and say, oh, we're not allowed to worship our gods. He's trampled all over our culture. He doesn't let us behave like Egyptians and Ammonites. He just makes us all like Israelites. That wouldn't do any good. So Solomon would rationalize that and say, well, that's no good because that will undermine the goodwill I'm trying to build. And of course, I'm only trying to build the goodwill to keep us safe as a nation. It's very easy to rationalize it, but his heart was the problem. He was, wanted these things, he wanted these women, and he enjoyed whatever it brought him. God warned him, your heart's not after me. It says <clears throat> in verse 6, he did not follow the Lord completely. It says in verse 4, his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. I bet he rationalized right, left and center about all this. But the key problem was God said, it's all about your heart. If your heart was fully devoted to me, you wouldn't be doing that. You wouldn't be doing it and rationalizing it. And when you look at what Solomon does, it's pretty shocking, really. It's there in, in, for example, verses 7 and uh, 8. He built... Uh, essentially a temple to these horrible gods. Some of them had child sacrifices. Shamosh and Molech. He built them right by Jerusalem. Now, in Jerusalem, he built this magnificent temple to the, the true and living God. He'd done it. He'd built it. He'd done it right. And it was filled with glory and clouds came down. And, and people couldn't even get in it because of the presence of God. And, and, he, and people were flat on their faces. And it's a magnificent experience. You can read it in 1 Kings 8. And he saw all that, and yet he built temples to these foul pagan gods with child sacrifice. What is he doing? Solomon, what are you doing? Long before any temple to Molech goes up, his heart has gone cold with God. These things don't happen overnight. These things do not happen overnight. Long before that temple went up, his heart had gone. You see Christians doing things. You know, sadly, it's painfully close to home. What are you doing? Messing about, leaving your wife, saying this, saying that, going off with this little single girl you've picked up from work. and What are you doing? You've got children. You've been a leader in the church. You know, Why are you suddenly doing this? Well, people aren't suddenly. Something's gone wrong in their heart a long time earlier. It's a slow drift. It's not always instant. It's it's that you've compromised again and again in your heart. And the final result is amazing. You're jaw-dropping. So you've built a temple to Molech outside Jerusalem. Well done. God must, you know, you feel like being sarcastic. You're like banging his head on the wall of the temple. What are you doing? But long, 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 long way back, his heart was not right for God. We've got to keep our hearts focused on God. Out of the heart comes the answer. Guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. There is a very sobering phrase in verse 4. As Solomon grew old. Actually, it's scary. It's more than sobering. As Solomon grew old... His wife turned his heart after his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. You know, brothers and sisters, I'll join you in here. Let's join, preach to myself with you. There are a lot of us in this room who've been Christians a very long time. We know that from David's survey he did a little while ago. Many, 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 many of you have been Christians for longer than 15 or 20 years. We need more who are Christians for 15 days. 
or even 15 minutes. I want more and more saved. But that's not the subject this morning. Many of us have been Christians for a long time. Some of us are getting older. Well, we're all getting older. You know what I mean. Um, Some of us, you know, we're getting old, you know, children growing up and all the rest of it. Actually, we need to be careful that we're still on course with God. And in fact, if I add a layer to it, I know, and it's, it's great fun leading this church, but there are masses of people here who've been in some form of leadership in Christian leadership. I mean, there are loads of you. It's amazing proportion. I don't know what it is. But, you know, you've, you've done something in leadership as well at some time. Let me just say to you that these things do not mean you are running with God today. They don't necessarily mean that. You do actually pick up baggage with all of that. You pick up disappointments. You pick up bitterness. You pick up compromises over the years. And it's not how you started the race that counts. It's how you finish it. It's no good telling me, you should have seen me running in the first 10 miles, John. You should, this is a 26-mile marathon. You should have seen me in the first 10 miles. I mean, I used to lead a church. I used to preach. I used to evangelize. I was running the youth work. You should have seen me in the first 10 miles. It's mile 20, and I'm seeing you now. It's mile 20, I'm seeing you now. This is a race. It's not finished yet. If you're sitting on the bank, puffing and having a cup of coffee when the rest of us are running, I don't care how well you ran in the first 10 miles. It's irrelevant. Actually, it's irrelevant to God at one level. We're on a race. It's an on- salvation is ongoing. It's a present salvation. It's, it's an ongoing working out of what you believe. It is a race. That is a New Testament uh, metaphor that is picked up a number of times in the New Testament. It is an ongoing experience. You go on running the race. You go on persevering. You go on having a heart for God. And Solomon's a challenge to us. Where are my affections today? Has there been an imperceptible drift that actually has made me right? Why, of course. I'm not even running the race very well or at all. Have I left my first love? These are real challenges. Solomon did never, never officially renounced worship of Yahweh. Of course he didn't. He never officially renounced worshipping the Lord. But his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. He didn't follow the Lord completely. Early on, 1 Kings 3, you'll read this phrase. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David. That's a phrase you'll find in 1 Kings 3. But these are the phrases you find in 1 Kings 11. And they're challenging. It was gradual. It was slowly, but it was from the heart. But here's the good news. The problem starts in the heart. The problem is solved in the heart, too. That's how the problem... Because sometimes you think, well, I've, I've been drifting for 10 years. How do I put that right? Well, you just put it right now. <laughs> in a sense, that doesn't disqualify you either. Like the 10 years of brilliant running, you know, 10 years ago, doesn't mean you're wonderful today. 10 years of, of a poor failure to run isn't saying, well, you can never run again. No, no, you get your heart right with God now. That's where it starts. It always starts there. Let's have a heart check. Let's do it this week. Let's do it openly before God. Let's do it tonight when we come to worship. We're going to worship. We're going to put ourselves before the Lord. We're going to do it a little bit at the end of this morning for a few minutes and then pick it up again tonight. We just need our hearts right with God. It's so wonderful that God doesn't require us to do huge penances, huge 10 years of suffering to make up for 10 years of neglect. That is not how God works. You just can come back... Solomon could have come back to God at this point. In fact, God was challenging him about it, I believe, in some of these these words that were spoken to him, for example, in verse 11. God was challenging him, but it seems he didn't. And uh, 
we can. We can get our heart right with God. So my third point is the choice is yours. And I find this quite challenging. I find it all quite challenging, actually, as you can see. Solomon makes a quite incredible statement in 1 Kings 8. It's, uh, it's not going to go up on the screen. You don't need to turn to it. What I mean by, well, look at it. Let's read it and look at it. This context of this, 1 Kings 8, verses 57 and 58, this is the context, is the wonderful dedication of the temple. This is before these temples to Molech have been built, although he still has got his Egyptian princess. The rot has set in a little bit. But anyway, here here he's got this wonderful temple, and we we still sing songs. We still sing songs. 3,000 years later, we sing songs about what happened at that day of dedication. The power of God came down. The cloud filled the temple. There was an awesome sense of the presence of God. And Solomon prays, and then he blesses the people. And in his blessing, he says this, May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he never leave us nor forsake us. May he turn our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep the commands, decrees and regulations he gave our fathers. I believe he was sincere. I don't believe he was just waffling. May he turn our hearts to him. Perhaps Solomon already felt a bit guilty. I don't know. But why didn't it happen then? Why did his heart get worse, not better? Why did his heart not turn back, but actually the perspective of the next 20 years and the next few chapters is that his heart drifted and got colder? Did God not answer? Is God letting him down? No. You can't ask God to turn your heart, I don't think. I think there are some things God won't do. He can do an awful lot. He can line the circumstances up and really put you in a corner where the only thing you can do really rationally is say, God, I need you. But he can't make you say, God, I need you. Some people blame the circumstances. Don't blame the circumstances. What matters is your reaction to the circumstances. It's how you choose to handle circumstances. It's not the circumstances, it's your reaction to them. You choose your reaction. Solomon had, was, was making pious statements about something in the end or his decision. May our hearts, may he, God, may he turn our hearts to him. God's not going to do that. You turn your heart to him. He will support you when you do it. He will help you when you do it. He'll even rough you up a bit to make you do it. But you've still got to do it. You choose to turn your heart to God. That's why it's got any value. There are some things that we do take to heaven. We don't take our material things. They don't belong to us. But we take us, the real us. We take our character. We take our fruit. We take what we are in Christ. We take the things that are ours. Where how have we handled God? You know, and there's something that is ours. It's our heart. God's chosen that. God's given us choice. Real choice. Adam and Eve. Real choice. How are you going to to obey me? Are you going to follow me or not? I'm not going to make you turn your heart to me. And that's a very challenging thing. They are our choices. Actually, Solomon's loyalties were divided. And he followed the wrong thing. His loyalties were divided between God and all these foreign women and all that they stood for and the power and the influence and the pleasure. You know, it's a modern tendency. It's a modern tendency to blame shift, isn't it? We all know that. We blame shift today. It's very, very easy to do it, to say, well, I'd be so much better if this had not gone wrong. And I know this is happening to all of us a lot more than we'd admit. 
if only I'd been handled better in my previous church, I'd be red hot. If only I'd been handled better in this church, I'd be red hot for God. If only I'd been brought up better, I'd be this. If only this, if only. We do it a lot. But actually, there is a challenge here for us in Solomon. Sometimes we say, if only I'd had a better example. Sometimes we say, if only I'd had better experiences. Sometimes we say, if only I'd had a better education or better instruction. Well, let's briefly just notice that none of those really are valid in the end. In 1 Kings 11.6, we're reminded about Solomon's father. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. David was not perfect. We all know that. Very imperfect. But he was good in this way. He had a heart for God. He had a heart after God. He was not unfaithful for God. He didn't worship other idols. He never got messing up his, his religion. He was very, very clear. He, he messed up in other ways. And that, read Psalm 51, that drove him back to God. Oh, God, against you alone have I sinned. Because he was faithful to God. He had a relationship with God. Here's the rub. Solomon had a wonderful example in his dad. Sometimes people say, one of the problems with young people, there's no example. There's no heroes. There's no heroes today. That's why they're not doing so well as they should. There's no heroes. It's not about heroes. It's about you. You don't need a hero example to do the right thing. You just do the right thing that you know is right. Make yourself a hero. We, I mean, come on, what, we can't blame. Oh, the, you know, if only they were fathered properly. Look, those things can do damage, but they do not hold you back. In the end, Solomon chose not to follow something which he had a superb example in his father. He chose to do the wrong thing. If only I had such and such example. No, the choice is yours. Let's look at verse 9 quickly. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. Now, this is the experience argument. Now, this is very subtle and I've heard it and I still hear it in Christian circles. I've heard it even quite recently. People will say something like this. I'd be okay if I only experienced God more, if I felt more, if I, my emotions, if I felt he manifested himself more to me. If I felt more of God, it would be better, and I need to feel more. Okay? Now, I'm not despising the value of feelings, but that is not an excuse for not going on in God. That is not a reason for turning away and turning the tap off. It just isn't. Solomon had God appear to him personally twice. Solomon was the central player in that extraordinary experience I've referred to of the temple being filled with the glory of God and the cloud coming down and people couldn't even get in the door. And Solomon experienced all that. And yet he followed his heart wrongly. He chose to follow other things. It didn't keep him on the rails. Even the most privileged, intimate experiences with God do not guarantee immunity from compromise and infidelity. They don't. I've had some wonderful experiences with God. Thank God. But they're not why I'm here in front of you this morning remotely. In fact, if you begin to go cold, you begin to question the experiences. And actually look back and say, I'm not sure that was God. Was that God? Was it me? Was it somebody else? Was I just hyped? Was I just... I mean, I have sat and spent hours counselling people who've had experiences that you would think were extraordinary and I've been persuading them they're still Christians. 
Because so much has happened since, they're just wrecked. Now, it's wonderful to have experiences, but you make choices daily to follow God, whether you have the experiences or not. They're a bonus, but they're not what you build on. They're not what you build on. And, you, you know, this is not, and it's a fallacy. <laughs> I need experiences more. No. And then this one, verse 10. Although he had, God had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. You know, sometimes you get the argument, if only people were informed more, if only they were taught more, if only they understood more. But we can have masses of teaching and still not follow God. I think perhaps that, this has been a teaching centre for years, and many of you do follow the Lord, of course. But, I, but you're not, that's not a basis. Your knowledge isn't a basis. This is a heart thing. It's a heart thing. And, and, and actually, uh, you know, you can sometimes think, if only we indoctrinate children thoroughly, they'll be okay. No, they won't. You've got to teach them to have a heart for God. You can't you have a relationship with God. You can't say, if only we give them a Christian worldview and don't let them see any other worldview. That's not what's going to keep them on the track. You've got to talk to your kids all through their teens, and you've got to talk living, day on day, about what it is to have a heart for God, walk with God. You've got to go through the pain. I can see eyes. I won't look at it. The pains of when they slip up and you help them bail, and bail, bail them out and pray with them. And you have to go through sometimes very painful times. And weep, you weep over. But you see them come through if you walk with the Lord in it and bring them into that. You pray your heart out for them. We've done it. And you, and you, you talk them through it. And, you, and it's not like, well, if we can pack enough knowledge into them in the first seven years, they're going to be okay. They know it. They'll be all right. Doesn't work in any, doesn't work in a stupid theory. Isn't a theory about drugs? You know, if they only understood that drugs fried their brains, they wouldn't take drugs. Oh, don't be so stupid. You know, it's sin. You I mean, you can understand all sorts of things. That's not what stops you doing it. I mean, cigarette packets, have you seen them? It kills you, you'll get this disease. They've got pictures of people's lungs hanging out the packet nowadays. I assume they'll be putting a bit of diseased tissue on the outside. And Steve, people still smoke. No, it's not, you know, come on, it's not about information, purely. It's got a minor part to play. But it's not. It's about something in here, isn't it? It is, it is, it is, it is, it is. We have a heart for God. And Solomon had very clearly spelled out to him what this would mean. It was in Deuteronomy and Exodus anyway. It's repeated here. God says, this will lead to disaster. You marry foreign women. You worship their gods. You'll find I'm your enemy, not your friend. I get angry. It will end in total disaster. And Solomon knew it. Full on knew it. So actually, we press on to follow the Lord and to know him. Last week... We said this, uh, almost as I come towards the end, it's rather similar. As you see these things unravel in this chapter, you find, this is quite important, you find enemies rise up against Solomon. There's one in 14. The Lord raised up against Solomon an adversary. Blah, blah, blah. So in 23, the Lord raised up against Solomon another adversary. What I found this week was quite interesting. Those words adversary are the same word as the word Satan in the Old Testament. In fact, I think they are the word Satan in Hebrew. And it... So adversary and Satan in the Old Testament seem to be the same word. What happened is something, God allowed something, some adversaries to grow in their impact on Solomon and their grip on him. And Solomon fought it, he counterplotted, and he fought against them. But actually, that wasn't the answer. 
The issue would not have been deci- was not decided by him dealing with the adversary. It was by his relationship with God. That's where the issue was decided. And now we have an adversary, the devil. And when we give him space, he uses it big time. And he comes in and he gets a grip. And God sometimes allows that as a toleration, a permission. Because the adversaries are sometimes allowed to come in to pressurize. It happened with Solomon. But instead of turning to God, Solomon stayed focused on the adversaries. You'll see it. Counterplotting. We must be careful. We always must react to what is often adversarial attack from Satan by drawing close to God. We stand fast in the Lord. We stand on him. The battle is the Lord's. Think of your Ephesians 6. It's God's armor we put on. It's the, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. We stand on the gospel of peace. We have the sword of the spirit. We, we fight. These, we have adversaries, but the answer is always Godward. The answer is our relationship with God, not some new strategy to out-strategize the devil. We can't. His schemes are probably cleverer than ours. If we're going to stand against the devil's strict schemes, we need to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. That's where the strength is. It's in the Lord, you see. Because I'm, I'm not going to win otherwise. So these adversaries, Solomon's trying to deal with But actually, Solomon, that's where the problem is. That's why they're coming in. Even if, you know, to be honest, God's taken the leash off some of them. And let them come in. You've got to focus on the real problem and the real answer, which is your relationship with God. Hallelujah. It's also the real answer. It's not just the problem. God will fulfill his promises to you, Solomon, as you get your heart back with God. And this is going to be the same for us. If we continue running the race with him, if we keep our focus on Jesus, we will see everything God has promised us. But it isn't a guarantee just because it's promised. Solomon had things promised that he never saw because he blew it. And how did he blow it? Very successful in many ways. He blew it in here in his relationship with God. So it's always the place we start. Our relationship with God is the deciding factor in our lives. And as we finish, we're going to just worship God for a few minutes together. We're just going to remind ourselves of that. We're going to focus back on the Lord. Thanks, John, if you could come up with the band And we're going to set ourselves up for our week of prayer. We might respond a bit this morning, but I want us to pick up this theme as we start this evening as well. That, Lord, it is about you. It's my heart for you. That's where it's all decided. We can get praying and asking for things, wondering how we're going to achieve this and that. But in the end, it is all about him, isn't it? And that's where it starts. Just as the band gather, can I make one comment? You may not be a Christian here today, And what I'm saying has a relevance to you, particularly this last point. You could say, well, my life's a terrible mess. I've got all sorts of problems. You don't understand. I personally don't understand. No, I don't understand them. But God does understand them and know them. And I can assure you that the answer to your problem starts with getting right with God. It starts with finding a home with him. Just as we've seen Solomon's problems rooted back to his heart drift from God, your problems will begin to be solved in one way or another as you connect with the living God through Jesus Christ. Now, I haven't time to explain that all to you, but you've heard advertised this morning an Alpha course, which you could well go on. We'd love you to come on. You can find out about that this morning. We have a question and answer section just over there in front of the visitor's coffee. You could join us there and just talk to us about it.
But let me assure you that the answer for you starts with getting right with God. And for the rest of us who already know God a bit more like Solomon, if there are things we're battling with, and we all are battling with things, the answer is always going to be being strong in the Lord, keeping close to him, a heart completely devoted to him. Amen? Okay, let's sing. Thank you, John.